Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN it is the final show of 2019. Legal Face Off on WGN. Rich Linkoff, Tina Martini. My name is Sam Panionovich. Ben Anderson across the glass. A lot of topics per usual. And three guests. Heidi Brown, author of The Introverted Lawyer. We'll talk to Richard Painter, professor, University of Minnesota Law School. And Bill Tonelli, who's a famous mob author. A lot of books here, and he will talk about the latest movie, The Irishman, and how fact or fiction it may be. But we lead things off talking about who else? The president, Donald Trump, and his impeachment trial. To do that, we go to Minnesota, University of Minnesota Law School, Richard Painter, host of the Politics Podcast. Professor, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Also notably, former George W. Bush administration chief ethics lawyer. So this is right in your wheelhouse, obviously. You've been all over media. We really appreciate you jumping on. Of course, uh, we are looking at an impeachment trial here in a few days. Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader today, said that he would not accept Democrat demands um, to have White House officials come in and testify. So people like Mick Mulvaney and John Bolton, if you follow the Republican strategy, uh, won't be heard from. What are your thoughts on, on that development? Well, uh, that's uh, outrageous. There needs to be a fair trial. Uh, the evidence needs to be presented to the full Senate. Uh, the senators act as jurors and make the decision. And the president cannot be convicted and removed from office without the vote of two-thirds of the Senate. So, yes, it's an uphill battle for the uh, prosecution from the House of Representatives, but they do have the right to introduce uh, evidence. Uh, so what's going to happen is there will be motions on the floor of the Senate uh, for this evidence to be introduced at trial, and the Senate, by majority vote, uh, will rule on these motions, these evidentiary motions and procedural motions for the trial. And so uh, what we need is a, at least a handful of Republican senators who, uh, whether or not they will vote to convict Donald Trump in the end, uh, will come down squarely on the side of a fair trial uh, where the House has the opportunity to present uh, the evidence in support of the bill of impeachment. Professor, what are your thoughts on the idea that many Republicans have already come out and said they have already made up their minds? Of course, Mitch McConnell said that he'd be working with the White House, which, you know, when you think of this from a trial perspective, is pretty outrageous. That's like a prosecutor in a criminal case saying that he will work with the defendant uh, on the prosecution of their case. So, you know, it seems to many like it's already been decided. Clearly, the Republicans, many have already come out, like, you know, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham already said they've made up their mind. So what do you make of all that? Well, they're not doing their job. Their job is to try the case, to hear the evidence, and then and then decide it as what jurors are judging in a case. And uh, their job is not to be coordinating with the defendant, with lawyers for the defendant, uh, here, uh, President Donald Trump. And even worse, uh, they're taking cash campaign contributions with Donald Trump. He's running around raising money uh, for the Republican senators uh, for their campaign war chests. Uh, and uh, that's really quite outrageous. Uh, and I believe the senators are not going to, uh, uh, to fare very well in the court of public opinion. If they conduct themselves this way, uh, they should uh, chill out, uh, wait for the trial, hear the evidence, uh, allow the witnesses to testify, and then they make their decision. Uh, but this is just not the way it ought to be handled. So, Professor, against this backdrop, how do you think an acquittal would play out politically until the 2020 election? 
Well, an acquittal is going to, uh, based on this evidence, it's overwhelming evidence that the president committed bribery and extortion in the Ukraine matter alone, uh, not to mention what happened with the Russia investigation, the obstruction of justice there, and then he's ignoring the House subpoenas, obstruction of Congress. I mean, the list of offenses is really uh, quite substantial. Uh, so I, I think an acquittal is just going to look like what it is. It's, it's a partisan a decision by the Senate, uh, the Republican senators, to let them off the hook, and it's going to have no more credibility than an old white jury in 1965 acquitting a Klansman in Mississippi. I mean, people are going to see right through it, uh, and it's not going to sit well with the voters. Professor, as we mentioned, you were the chief ethics lawyer during the George W. Bush administration, which, you know, in many ways seems like ancient history at this point. Is there even an ethics lawyer in the current White House? And how does that department, you know, run? And, and, and it must be butting heads with the current president, you know, to walk us inside that office and how that interacts, how that office and your role interacts with the president. Well, I have no idea what's going on in this White House. They wouldn't <laughs> let me in the doors. Uh, and they certainly don't call me and ask me for advice. Uh, uh, under Presidents uh, Clinton, uh, Bush, Obama, there was one uh, ethics lawyer in charge of an ethics law office, and ethics questions were supposed to be directed to that office. And and, and most of them were. There, there were exceptions where people went off and did stuff they weren't supposed to be doing without ever asking me, and I get upset about that. But nothing like what's happening in the Trump administration. Uh, and uh, for a while, they had a lawyer who said he was the ethics lawyer who was firing off uh, letters to the Office of Government Ethics, saying the uh, Office of Government Ethics regulations don't apply to the White House staff. Uh, that was after Kellyanne Conway got in trouble for hawking uh, Ivanka clothes on Fox and Friends. And then they had another lawyer take up uh, Kellyanne Conway's Hatch Act violations. Uh, you know, I really think what's going on is there's so many ethics problems in the Trump administration that all the lawyers are working on ethics problems in the Trump administration, probably 24-7. Uh, but I don't think there's a lot of effort to comply with the law there. Professor, I saw you recently on MSNBC um, accusing Trump, President Trump of violating the Emoluments Clause. A few days ago, President Trump shared a Trump Organization promotion of Mar-a-Lago on his Twitter account, adding at the end, I will be there, quote, I will be there in two weeks, comma, the Southern White House, exclamation point. So I know you have accused him of violating the Emoluments Clause. That hasn't seemed to stuck to stick. It certainly wasn't an article of impeachment. Why do you think the Democrat in the House did not include the Emoluments Clause violation as an article of impeachment? And more importantly, what do you think should be done in the future to avoid the conflict of interest between, you know, running a business and running the executive branch? Well, I think the absolutely should have impeached him for violating the monuments clause. He's, uh, something I've been pointing out since day one of his administration. And, in fact, we sued him from Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, where I was the vice chair. We brought a suit in federal district court in New York, and that's now advanced. Uh, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals has agreed with us uh, about our argument on standing uh, um, uh, for the plaintiffs in that case. The uh, bottom line is the Constitution prohibits any uh, United States government official from accepting profits and benefits from foreign governments and business deals with foreign governments. And their foreign governments were funding his uh, uh, Trump organization, uh, 
injecting capital into the organization, running the hotel rooms and the rest of it, it's a serious problem. It's a threat to our national security, and so much so that the founders put this provision in the Constitution. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a serious issue, and it ties into this broader theme, though, that is part of the Articles of Impeachment, that this president is entangling himself with foreign governments and using foreign governments to either enrich himself, in the case of the emoluments clause, or uh, to further his uh, political fortunes. In the case of what happens with Ukraine here, uh, and uh, it, it's a very dangerous situation for our national security. So, Professor, let's shift to something that's closer to your heart, and that's the University of Minnesota football team. What has it been like this year, the transformation, P.J. Fleck? Are you rowing the boat? Are you, buying the, are you buying the hype or what? No, I think we're gonna go. We're gonna make some progress here for for a change. I, I'm 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 uh, very very hopeful for the Gophers. All right, that Absolutely. is Professor Richard W. Painter, S. Walter Ritchie, Professor of Corporate Law, University of Minnesota Law School. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Joining us now on Legal Face Off, welcome back to the show. You can always follow us on Twitter. You can like us on Facebook and rate, review, listen to the show wherever you consume your podcast. Bill Tonelli is an author in the latest book, MobFest 29, which is a Kindle single. But, Bill, we want to talk a lot about The Irishman, which recently came out in theaters and on Netflix. First and foremost, welcome to the show. Thank you. So good to have you on, Bill. We were just talking about The Irishman and how we all loved it, but you've got a different take, and you say that uh, a lot of it is made up. Explain that, please. Well, it's not that it has nothing to do really with the movie. I think that the movie is is uh, an accurate version of the book, but the book is a completely false version of the truth. Tell us why. Uh, because uh, the, the story of the Irishman, as is told in the book, is made up in that Frank Sheeran, the Irishman, uh, who claims to have killed Jimmy Hoffa, claims to have killed Joey Gallo, claims to have killed 25 to 30 other people, uh, on behalf of Jimmy Hoffa, almost certainly didn't do any of that. And if you talk to anybody who uh, knows anything at all about it, whether you're talking to FBI agents or police or investigative journalists 
or people who have who themselves have mob connections or were involved with the mob back in Philadelphia at the same time Sheeran was, will all say the same thing. It's, it was kind of like an open secret that people who actually knew what they were talking about when it comes to all this stuff knew that Sheeran actually didn't do any of the things that he supposedly uh, did. So your article uh, from August on the Slate, which can be found on Slate.com, goes into some details. It's called The Lies of the Irishman. But explain in a little more detail, you know, if if Frank, uh, the Irishman, didn't kill Jimmy Hoffa, do we know who did? Obviously, there's been lots of theories over the years. Um, but what's your take on who actually killed the former Teamster boss? Well, the consensus seems to be that there was a New Jersey hitman, a New Jersey mobster named Sal Bergoglio, who was working for and had worked in the past for another New Jersey mobster named Anthony Provenzano, Tony Pro, who's in the film, who is a prominent uh, uh, character in the film. And he and Hoffa were feuding, and the, the mob in general didn't want Hoffa back in charge of the Teamsters Union, and uh, push finally came to shove, and, and shove came to Hoffa being murdered. Nobody, nobody has ever been found. There's not even evidence that he was murdered. Maybe still alive uh, somewhere. He'd be, he'd be 106 years old <laughs> if he was still alive. But, but other than that, you're right. So what details do you think the Irishman got right? Uh, well, certainly it got right the whole story of Hoffa and his prominence as a, as a, uh, as a national figure, a union leader. Uh, who was also in bed with the mob, who had essentially loaned the mob money out of the Teamsters Pension Fund to to build Las Vegas and to, to do lots of other things that, that uh, mobsters wanted to do uh, with that money. So that part was true. The fact that he was on the outs with the mob was true, and that the mob allegedly wandered him out of the way, all that is true. His feud with Bobby Kennedy, there's a lot. I mean, the, history, the good thing about it is the history is really great. And for people who didn't know, much or anything at all about Jimmy Hoffa or his role in American history in the second half of the 20th century, it's a pretty good history lesson. The whole thing is pretty good, except for Frank Sheeran, uh, who's, you know, he's kind of a convenient character to have in the movie because he takes you through all that history. But it's almost like he's like the Forrest Gump of organized crime because he's there when Joe Gallo gets killed. He's there when Jimmy Hoffa gets killed. He's there when the rifles are taken to assassinate JFK. He's kind of everywhere. Yeah, let's talk about the uh, the uh, Joe Gallo scene, because in the movie it depicts Frank Sheeran as um, going to Umberto's clam house in Little Italy um, and kills Joe Gallo. Um, how accurate was that scene? I mean, I think you're saying that he, Frank Sheeran wasn't even involved in that murder. Is that right? Right. It was 100% accurate, except for Frank Sheeran's presence. <laughs> uh, and again, you know, I wasn't there. And nobody has ever been convicted of the killing. And so that's really what makes it possible for anybody to step up and say that they did it. But there are eyewitnesses. I spoke with Gallo's widow, who was sitting there at the table, who described the killer as being a kind of a five foot eight little Italian guy with a receding hairline, which fits perfectly the description of the person who everybody has believed all along actually committed the crime, which is a guy named Carmine DiBiase, who was a convicted murderer, mobster. You know, the, there's the entire story of what happened there. The, 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 to the best of anybody's knowledge, the accurate story has no involvement of, of Frank Sheeran. Bill, one of the most compelling parts of the movie, I think, is not, to me anyway, was not necessarily the 
crime scenes and the murders. Um, but for me, more of the effect that this life had on some of the principles. You know, we see um, the Joe Pesci character and the De Niro character. Um, we see them, you know, at various points in their life, obviously, through some technology uh, involving de-aging. But what really touched me was, you know, seeing them through the stages of their life and how, you know, they ended up um, in rather tragic ways. The movie obviously ends with De Niro's character alone in a nursing home, um, very much by himself. He's lost touch with a lot of his family members, including very notably his daughter, who lost touch with him over his life. So can you talk about, you know, being an expert on uh, the mafia, what effect a lifetime in the mob does have on, you know, one's relations with their family and, and you know, their overall sort of time on this earth? Yeah, you know, well, it's interesting. Obviously, many mobsters never quite make it to the point of old age in a nursing home. So for some of these guys, at least, uh, that never really becomes much of a problem. And for others, I mean, there are definitely lots of old gangsters out there, many of whom though still have somehow maintained good relations with their uh, with their families. I mean, I suppose that there are some who end up the way that Sheeran did, um, although I guess the ones that you hear about or read about are the guys who often still do have, you know, families and children. They're kind of good family men, except for the fact that they were killers and, and uh, hardened criminals. They actually had, you know, good family uh, relationships. At least some of them did. So what's the status of organized crime today here in Chicago and around the country? You know, I don't know. That I don't really know that much about Chicago, uh, although I imagine that it still is, is uh, exists there. I think that it exists everywhere. It's it's a lot less uh, of, a, of a force than it once was. And I think that part of that is because all the ways that organized crime once made its money have really been taken away. Once upon a time, it made it initially made its money because of prohibition. So they were able to sell illegal alcohol to people. Well, that's legal now. Then they, they made their money from gambling because gambling was only really legal in one place, Las Vegas. Well, today, it seems like every city and state has got casinos and has got lottery. And so all of a sudden, another huge source of income for the mob has been taken away. And then the laws change, RICO laws and wiretapping uh, has made it difficult for these guys to really escape uh, 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 convictions or having to plead guilty. And so I think that the whole thing has really been decimated. There's still crime out there, obviously. But I think for these guys, um, you know, they either went legitimate or uh, they're kind of dinosaurs. Last thing, Bill. Best mafia movie, in your opinion. Which one? Wow, it's a tough one. Let's see. Goodfellas was pretty great. Obviously, the two Godfathers, the first two Godfathers are untouchable, uh, no pun intended, uh, when it comes to gangster movies. Goodfellas was a great movie. Mean Streets, the near, I mean, Scorsese's first major movie had kind of an organized crime thing going through, and it felt really very real and gritty. I think that, that for me, The Irishman is down the list because it's sad. These guys are sad and depressing. They're old men uh, in nursing homes. To me, that you know, that's not much of a thrill. Do you really, Bill, do you really get both red and white wine in the joint? Sure. If you're uh, if you're uh, a capo, right? If you're if you're Paul, so they say, right? Yeah. They get they get uh, uh, now we can eat delivered. They, you know yeah, when, exactly. when he finally brings the cheese and the bread and the both wines. That's great exactly. stuff. Sure. So they say it's Bill Tonelli. BillTonelli dot com. T O N E L L I dot com. And the newest book, Mobfest twenty nine, available now. Kindle single. Bill, appreciate the time, sir. 
Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. We all know the legal world is complex and high-pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Our final guest today before the grab bag is Heidi Brown, who's an author. The Introverted Lawyer is the book, A Seven-Step Journey Toward Authentically Empowered Advocacy. And that's the website as well, theintrovertedlawyer.com. Heidi, welcome to WGN. Thanks for having me. So, Heidi, there are a lot of common misconceptions about what being introverted really means. Among other things, people equate being introverted with shyness, social anxiety, or being antisocial. What does being introverted really mean? and extroversion are really just the ways that different categories of people process information and stimuli and questions and answers and also the way we rekindle energy. So introversion is totally different from shyness and social anxiety, which are really a fear of judgment or criticism. Some of us can have both introversion and shyness or social anxiety, but introversion by itself is completely different from that fear. Heidi, it's really interesting. I, I was actually just watching, believe it or not, a 60 Minutes interview from maybe two or three weeks ago with Adam Sandler, um, and they ask him, you know, he says, I was really shy and I had a lot of stage fright, and he's the last person in the world you would think would be an introvert or shy. It's very common when you hear from celebrities, you know, especially ones who make their living from talking like comedians, it's very common for these people to say that when they're off the stage, they're some of the shyest people. That's a long wind-up to my question, which is, as a lawyer, I, I've never really been accused of being an introvert. I'm, you know, pretty outgoing. But that has its strengths, as does being an introvert, as your book um, so articulately points out. Explain to our listeners what some of the strengths of being an introvert in the legal profession are. Some of the strengths that can be really overlooked in introverts in the legal profession are active listening, thoughtful problem solving, being really creative, being a really deliberate and thoughtful writer. We can be very creative writers, which you might not think of legal writing as being creative, but it really is. And so introverts bring these particular assets to the lawyering table, whereas sometimes, you know, in America, we tend to stereotype lawyers or the successful lawyer as gregarious and outgoing or extroverted, but really quiet, thoughtful, deliberate people bring a lot to the table as lawyers. And to compare, to use your example of Adam Sandler, you know, lawyers are expected to perform, and introverts can be really impactful performers in the courtroom or negotiations or mediations, but we definitely need to retreat and be alone when we're through those activities, and so that's an example of how we can be like actors and, and step up to the plate, but in the end, we really need to retreat to a quiet haven to do that thoughtful processing and internal thinking. So, Heidi, unlike my esteemed co-host, I'm actually very much an introvert. Um, I'm pretty good at flipping the switch. Um, but I can vouch for the fact that there are times when coming out of my shell can be a difficult thing. Can you walk us through high level the seven-step journey that you write about in your book, which helps introverted lawyers find their voice? 
Yes, I'm all about amplifying our voices authentically when we need to, because obviously we do have to perform and interact in certain scenarios. So the seven-step process that I've developed, first of all, for myself, because I really knew I needed to work on this aspect of my personality, involves two steps of reflection and then two sets of action plans. So the first two steps are really taking a hard look at our mental soundtrack. What are we telling ourselves about our introversion or our performance capabilities that maybe are outdated messages that could be overwritten? So that's sort of an internal look at what we tell ourselves every day. And sometimes it can be kind of unpleasant, um, but we can realize that those messages are outdated. The second step is a physical inventory. So sometimes we introverts process energy and can feel really drained by social engagement or performance activities. So doing a physical inventory and realizing that certain things our bodies or our physical frames do that seem to be self-protective are actually not helping us be energized in the moment, even just the way we stand or sit. And so I like to talk about it as sort of treating ourselves like athletes. The next two steps are kind of taking that information and turning it into an action plan, having a new mental soundtrack that we ignite or initiate at the onset of each performance moment. Same thing with the physical, having a physical action plan. If we realize we're tired or we're not you know, ready to step into the engagement, we can treat ourselves like, like athletes or scholar athletes, I like to say, and really step into the performance moment more authentically but more powerfully. And then the last three steps are really just planning. It's kind of having an exposure agenda. The psychology literature talks about exposure, but I, I like to think of it as stepping in and exposing ourselves to those scenarios with these plans. And then step six is having a pregame and game day plan for those events. Step seven is then reflecting on each event afterwards and then making subtle adjustments for next time. Heidi, it's interesting that Tina just mentioned that she could turn on the switch when she needs to, transforming from being an introvert to an extrovert, because, you know, I think sometimes you can do that. You know, even if you're not naturally extroverted, um, even I find myself when I have to work a room, you know, with potential clients or existing clients or at a networking event, you know, I can go from being, you know, quieter to being on so my question to you is how much of an extrovert is really nature versus nurture? In other words, how much of that can be related to simply switching, you know, turning a switch on? Or are there people who are just, you know, on nonstop? And by the way, I hate those people. <laughs> <laughs> those people can be tiring. I will say that. Um, I, I do think it is we are we do tend to gravitate sort toward one personality trait versus the other. But. As you mentioned, you know, some of us can be very good at navigating situations which might make us look like extroverts, but we know internally that we are introverted and those scenarios are going to wear us out. And I used to have to, I used to feel like I had to fake extroversion or mirror the behavior of my extroverted lawyer counterparts. But when I started doing this research, I realized I'm so much more effective if I just honor my introversion. I can step up to the plate and, and, and do a good job and be very energetic. And, and personable when I need to, but then I realize I can feel it happening to me in a performance moment or in a networking event that my energy is waning. Okay, I don't need to stay for the whole time. I can be really effective, maybe connect with three to five people instead of the whole room, and then allow myself to leave and retreat and then follow up using the, extra, the introverted 
uh, assets like writing and connecting on a, on a really deep human level to follow up with those individuals. She is Heidi Brown, author of the book, The Introverted Lawyer, available on Amazon and also at the website, theintrovertedlawyer.com. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. It is time for the legal grab bag, the final one of the calendar year. Rich, Tina, Sam, joining us in the studio, Jennifer Fondreve, who's the author of the book, Now What?, and also the founder of Day One Ready. Hello, Jennifer. Hello. So you have your own book. Tina brought her own book. We're going to talk about the book, of course. But to your right is one of my favorite people that I've ever worked with here, WGN Radio Walk of Famer. Yay! The lovely Andrea Darlis is here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'll always remember our time together here, and you and I shared a trolley ride in the Stanley Cup, was it 2010 parade? She actually snuck me on the trolley. Whoa. I wasn't nice. supposed to be on the yeah. trolley. That's a whole yeah. story right there. That's Statue a whole limitations wow. is up now, so wow. it's okay. Yeah, we It gives grab bag a whole new meaning. I heard <laughs> the buses went really fast. It was a trolley, number one. Yeah, it was a trolley. And, and I, I'm running around looking for my pass. Well, the thing is, the radio station had so many passes. You only had X amount of passes, and they gave them all the way to, like, the Bob Coins of the world, right? Yeah. Like, I, did, I covered I the, the sports team. guy. Yeah, I forget the guy that actually covered the team. So I'm just like, nah, just come on. I'll just sneak you on the bus. Wow. And we've had good times time. ever since. What so, year? What year was 2015. Uh, it was 2015. Now you get the third one tackled by security. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we'd both be thrown <laughs> in jail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so seven topics per usual, and Rich, we'll start with the Royal Caribbean lawsuits. Well, we say lawsuits because there's a couple episodes recently, so we all know about the grandfather who tragically uh, dropped his granddaughter off the top of the Royal Caribbean cruise. He thought that the glass was closed, the glass was open. I guess he said that in the past the toddler would like to bang up against the glass at hockey games, and he was not aware that the glass was open. A very tragic story. He's been charged by Puerto Rican authorities with uh, a criminal charge, and then the family, who's just from here over the border in uh, Indiana, um, they've turned around and filed a civil suit against Royal Caribbean, alleging that the cruise ship was negligent in having this window open. That's suit number one that was just filed last week. Suit number two has not been filed yet, as far as I know, but will be filed imminently, resulting from the volcano tragedy in New Zealand uh, last week, where um, several people died. Many are still in the hospital, including um, some youngsters here from Chicago, uh, two brothers who died tragically. I think their parents I were still... I think their parents yeah. died, too. Yeah, they mm-hmm. were missing for a while. I assume they're dead. But um, 
you know, inevitably in these situations, we see lawsuits um, and sometimes for the for, for good, sometimes for bad. And the question in the second case is, to what extent do you think Royal Caribbean is responsible for these events? Obviously, they're not responsible for a volcano, but the allegation will be that they were marketing this outing to the volcano and they were aware of the risks. In fact, in some of the um, in one of the advertisements, they were saying, you know, we'll equip you with a gas mask because you'll be very close to lava and, and all these um, all these things happening with volcanoes. So. Again, we say we say on this on the show a million times. You know, you can sue anyone for anything. The question isn't whether you could sue someone. The question is how likely a jury will find Royal Caribbean liable. I think there's some attraction to the idea that Royal Caribbean was aware of this risk. The flip side is, of course, assumption of the risk, which is a legal topic that you know means that you as an individual can't just walk around the world blind to risks and by going on the volcano or to the volcano, you assume the risk of it. Now, the question will be for a jury, how much did you think this thing would explode? But we've all heard that this was an active volcano. It had been, there had been warnings for a while that it would explode. In fact, um, there was some, you know, there was some lava coming in the days before. So there will be lawsuits. What do you all think of the two lawsuits? If you were on the juries, uh, would you find Royal Caribbean responsible? Let's talk about the uh, grandfather case first. Do you think that there's some merit to the lawsuit that the family brought, Tina? You mean with regard to the window? Yeah. You know, I think there probably is. What I don't know is to what extent these types of windows are typically open on a cruise ship to the extent they're not. Um, I would say that I do think there's some merit to it. I, I, I can't understand how the grandfather was under the impression that, you know, these sorts of windows are often not, you're not able to open them. So he compared it to like being at a, at a hockey game when you pound on the glass. So I can understand and I, I do think there may be some merit to it. Jennifer, I defend um, companies like this frequently. And the question you know, before a jury would be, one of the questions would be, to what extent did the cruise ship have notice, right? In mm -hmm. and of itself, leaving a window open is not negligent. You wouldn't assume that someone would, would this would happen. Of course, if it's happened in the past and Royal Caribbean was aware of that risk and didn't do anything to remedy it, that would be a more attractive theory to a jury. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I think I'm... Similar uh, to to Tina's comment, I think there's there's merit there. Where where I struggle is the point you just made, right? The fact that Royal Caribbean can't anticipate every action that someone takes. You know, life is inherent with risk. Um, where I think it could get tricky is the fact that it was a children's playroom and a children's play area. Uh, I think they were on the eleventh floor. Um, again, I, I think this one's a tricky case because as a juror, I, I would say Royal Caribbean can't anticipate the moves of every single passenger that they have on there, but they need to take precautions. And so I, I think the, the fact that the window was able to be opened in a children's play area, uh, it's, it makes it trickier. Andrea, in the second case, um, GeoNet, which is a geological hazard tracker, raised the alert level for the White Island volcano back in November and said on December 3rd that the volcano may be entering a period where eruptive activity is more likely than normal. The cruise line described the island as one of the most active volcanoes in the world. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and like I said, it said, get close to, this is according to a Royal Caribbean ad, get close to the drama. Gas masks help you get near roaring steam vents, bubbling pits of mud, hot volcanic streams, and the amazing lake of streaming acid. One of the women who died, her parents said that she would have never gone but for the assumption that Royal Caribbean knew what they were doing and would not put people in the situation. So you're in Miami. A lot of these suits are brought in Miami because that's the port of call. What do you do if this case is presented to I ha- you? I have to say, I think a Royal Caribbean would want me as a juror in both of these cases because I find absolutely no fault on either on their part in either of these stories. I think it's absurd to blame a cruise line because a, a, a human being held a, a one-year-old baby up into the air. If 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 the, if the glass broke, if the railing bent, then perhaps. Same with with this, you know, act of God defense. It clearly says, Rich, you just read it. It's you know they offer like Chernobyl tours where you can go in and they say get close to the radiation, put the gas mask on. They are clearly saying. You can you're 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 coming close to danger. That's why people that's why people are are taking this trip. They're not going to, you know, rural Starved Rock or Indiana or someplace where, you know, there's there's much less risk of a volcano or probably no risk of a volcano erupting. So I, I think it's absolutely ludicrous. I understand both families are grieving and it's horribly tragic in both instances. But how you can find how any judge wouldn't throw either of these out, I I just can't see it. Topic number two involves healthcare, which is a very serious issue in this country. And 12 ex-NFL players, including Clinton Portis and Joe Horn, have been charged with defrauding the NFL's healthcare program. Mm. Yeah, $4 million scheme, according to the Justice Department, uh, last Thursday announced charges against many former NFL players, including the two that you mentioned. The, the allegation is that they would obtain... Um, fabricated documents, invoices, and submit the claims and then get reimbursed for them. Um, There was kickbacks and bribes involved, uh, as much as $10,000. You know, you would think, Sam, I mean, you're, you know, the sports guy on the the panel here, you would think that Clinton Portis doesn't need money having played in the NFL for about 15 years. Uh, It turns out Clinton Portis declared bankruptcy a few years ago and, you know, never underestimate the amounts of money that these guys go through in a quick amount of time. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, I think it's a positive development to go after fraud in this manner, especially, you know, to your point uh, regarding health care. Tina, you saw the story. What are your thoughts? Yes, I completely agree that there's that this is a real problem. And it also, you know, it's a health care related uh, story as well. And so. We have we often talk about the challenges that healthcare has in the states, and I am glad that justice is being served here. It's it, it's just a very sad story to me, though, to have folks that were um, so well renowned renowned in in, in football um, and who are very well known among people, even after they've had their careers, to have. This be what we remember them for. Sam, before this, Joe Horn was most famously known for what? Mooning the fans no. after scoring a touchdown. Well, no, that yeah, was that. that was Randy Moss. <laughs> oh no, he pulled the cell, the cell phone, phone out of the right, oh, right, that's right. right. An early, it was a, a big celebrator. Yeah, an early cell phone. It was like a you know razor or something back then. But he hit it in the uh, in the goalpost. Yeah. Right, and he pulled it out, and yeah, I remember that. Yeah, no sympathy, I assume for. These football players who are no, defrauding. I, yeah, the... you can you can just come to me for the for the lack of sympathy on, on all of this part. I don't know if they get a pe- do they get a, like an NFL pension, Sam, yeah. or is oh, it? Yeah. 
should be stripped. They should have no, you know, they should be 100% kicked out of the NFL. Any appearances, legacy awards, anything of that sort, I think they should just completely be stripped of. Jennifer, My, career, career salary for Clinton Portis, by the way, $43 million. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, there's no sympathy for me uh, with these guys, but where. Where it, it is unfortunate are the NFL vets who were legitimately putting through yeah. submissions who are now essentially going to have to go through that many more hoops to fill out forms because now it's going to get scrutinized to the nth degree. So they've actually hurt other um, vets, NFL veteran players. And so that's that for me. That's where my sympathy goes. Would there ever be a case where a judge would rule in exactly what you just said, where a judge would say, you need to pay the the vets of the NFL who actually put yeah, into that would this be great. fund? Can, yeah, could the, that happen? The penalty I mean, should go into that fund for yeah. sure for legitimate claims. There if the NFL was smart, judge that's how they would play it. <laughs> judge Darlis strikes again. I think if the again. NFL was smart, that's how they'd play it. They'd sure. turn it into a marketing totally. opportunity to say, smart. here's how Absolutely. we're going to really provide support for our, our guys who used to play. As Absolutely. long as we never have to see that Clinton Portis character. What was the character he played? <laughs> in? Remember, he used to dress up in post-game press conferences. Yeah, he used to like get a character he played. No, I don't remember. No. I don't remember Bells that. Bells and whistles for sure. I do know something that makes lawyers cringe, though, yes. this word. Overbilling. Yes. <laughs> That's a bad one. Uh, right. Six-month suspension <laughs> yes. for uh, a, a partner at Dwayne Morris um, after she it was found out that she was inflating her billable hours while she was a partner at another firm. The firm found out and, uh, in fact, fired her. But, yeah, there's some eyebrows raised when she was submitting bills for, I think the number was over, it was like 3,100 hours a year. 3,893. Was it 3,800? <laughs> 3,800 hours? She had 3,173 billable and then 720 hours that were non-billable. I'm not a math guy, <laughs> but I think if you did the math on I that... I did it. it was, that's, that would be 75... That's 700, hour, that's 700 yeah. days a year. That lady was working either 10 to 12-hour days. Yeah, every day of the, every day of the year. 10.6 hours exactly. a day, every day. Would you you calculated it, too. I was like, there is no so way. So listen, I mean, at, you know, being at, at a... At a, at a Firm as Tina is, you know, we could as testify you are, right? to. <laughs> you all are. Yes, we all are. So there is a lot of pressure in the legal profession to bill, right? That is how we all make our money. But, and, you know, there are, I've seen aggressive billers in my time. And, and you know, at our firm, like at Tina's firm, we're very strict about the what goes out of our office. And when you see something like this, it's just shocking how this could go on. Not with, you know, sometimes you see a first or second year associate. This was an equity partner. This was an owner of a pretty prominent firm. Um, so, you know, to your point, gives lawyers a bad name. I'm glad she was caught and uh, kind of, you know, unfortunate that she's back. back Maybe at a good it. lesson another, to, another firm, to keep an eye on, to have yes. billing keep an eye on those sure. yeah, billable I'm, hours. You know, I mean, there are some firms where you've got partners billing a ton of hours. Um, there are certain firms that are known for that. Um, I think it was not just the sheer number of hours, but it was also patterns, like the way yeah. in which she billed. Um, I mean, I read that she was actually taking some hours she worked and attributing them to associates, yeah. which I, I think is is a, a big thing Strange, to, yeah. to 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 you know frame out here because that is something that's really tough. Um, you know, you either worked them yourself or you didn't. Well, and what I thought was fascinating, so I'm not in law, I'm from uh, the corporate side, is the 
the bad behavior looking the other way when bad behavior happens because they're revenue generators. Right. And movements have been started as a yeah. result of that, where you look the other way despite bad behavior. So I was it's not just lawyers who run into this <laughs> issue. Yeah. Doesn't a suspension seem is it is it a little lenient to me? I mean, wouldn't you just I think one of the, if you read the article, one of the reasons was uh, she alleged that she had a sick family member that was a, that was a factor, and there was a couple other issues. But yeah, you're right. It, it is, in my opinion, yeah. it is too lenient for sure. It doesn't send the right message. Topic number four involves Pete Davidson, former SNL star, and uh, a very interesting non-disclosure agreement here, Tina. Well, he's still an SNL. I thought he was, did he leave, or is he still no, there? No, did still you guys Maybe he's not a star that? anymore. I get, last weekend, I get they, confused. He's Last's no longer uh, engaged to Ariana Grande. Yes. No, he's <laughs> With, yeah, he's hanging out with Cindy Crawford and Randy Gerber's daughter. Oh, God. is that right? Yeah. Yes, it I, is. I, I, I'm sorry. I thought there was someone else. No, I, well, maybe before her. They just made a joke last weekend on the program that Pete Davidson shows up when he wants. Yeah. Okay. They said, is he still a cast member here? They said, oh, well, he shows up when he wants. And that was part of the sketch. It's yeah. been hard to keep track of who's coming and who's going on that show. But yeah. he's also, yeah, he hasn't been around as much. So my apologies there. But Tina, what can you tell us about the non disclosure? So he's been doing stand-up, and what's interesting is that um, it's a million-dollar non-disclosure agreement, which he has made fans who have come to see him do stand-up sign. Uh, and what this non-disclosure agreement says is that they are going to be watching creative content that he may be using in the future, either in connection with a live or TV program or other type of media and it forces fans to uh, agree that they will not disclose any jokes or stories or characters that he may talk about in his in his act, and um, yeah, claims that a violation is, so is a yeah well yeah <laughs> exactly. like it's Cause he's so like funny. it's never been recycled. We haven't heard anything like it before. But in <laughs> any event, there's a million dollar penalty associated with it, and there's been. Some interesting discussion among um, various pundits about whether or not this type of agreement no would way, be enforceable. Yeah. It's a million dollars. No I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's a contract of adhesion, which means that the parties who enter into the agreement are not in equal bargaining power. You know, any plaintiff would say, any defendant would say, I had no idea what I was signing. I didn't agree to it. The terms weren't explained. I mean, I, you know, as I'm sure you have, I've defended a lot of cases involving you know, waivers where actually people will sign a waiver or a release like an amusement park or something. Even those are really hard to enforce because, like I said, the defendant has all they have to show is that I didn't know what I was signing, that I didn't read it, that I'm not an equal bargaining power. There's like six factors that we have to prove in trying to enforce this that you would have to overcome. So, so how do you make case, it enforceable? How would you recommend that Pete Davidson make this enforceable? Well, it's Drop ridiculous. it. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the courts would also look at whether it, it, it's reasonable. It's ridiculous, obviously, to have a one a million dollar non disclosure over a comedian. If this was a you know business relationship and there's an mm -hmm. NDA, mm -hmm. sure, that maybe is enforceable. But for someone who's buying a you know twenty dollar ticket to go to a concert. That's nuts. And I mean, what I thought was hysterical but... is that so they they signed the non-disclosure, but it didn't say you can't disclose the non-disclosure. So <laughs> right. Fran posted so she it put on, on Facebook. Facebook. Right, right, yeah. right. And I yeah. thought that's brilliant. <laughs> I, I also wonder, I mean, from, I guess, the legal question would be, how could you even, even if it, it was ruled to be, yes, you this, this can go into effect, how on earth are you, in this age of social media, are you not going to 
post a selfie or exactly. well, you know, thing. hashtag a lot of these, but, but something. But a lot of these shows now will make you put your phone in those little pouches. Have you seen these? Yeah, yeah the Madonna concert. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that is which, a trend for sure. Which, again, how is how is that legal? I mean, you're you're going and you're basically relinquishing your f- cell phone rights. It's what intellectual if property, right? What if there's right. an emergency that yeah. you need to make a phone call, you know, if you're having a medical emergency or something, or you yeah. need to get a hold of a family member? So if I go to a Pete Davidson show and post a picture of him on stage and tweet it out with him wearing a chicken costume, I owe a million dollars. Allegedly. Uh, if this agreement is enforceable, <laughs> which isn't. But I went to the I went to Paisley Park a few weeks ago in, in um, Minneapolis, Prince's oh, yeah. thing, and they make you put the phone in the pouch and you can't take any pictures and it's a whole thing. So. Which is what's so bizarre is from a marketing standpoint, right. you, you are hurting yourself. Exactly. I mean, oh, now yeah. all those fans, now that this has come out, it's just, it wasn't a smart move. Topic number five, the topic reads as follows, Tina, broke-ass phone. That's what it says on my rundown. Yes. So we have a business in Ohio that was called Broke-Ass Phone. And um, what's interesting is that back in 2015, this cell phone repair business known as Broke-Ass Phone was barred from using its business sign. Um, And that was thanks to the, um, the local zoning board. And so fast forward to last month where the Ohio Court of Appeals overturned the zoning board's refusal to allow Broke-Ass Phone to have its name on the sign. What I really love is hearing how the court navigated through the whole um, analysis about whether or not this was an okay name to permit. And so... Um, the majority opinion was that it's not really being used in any type of crude or offensive way, that this is more of a vernacular type of use, that this is something that refers to a really or badly broken phone rather than being actually offensive. Um, the minority opinion was actually pretty funny because they started using the F word and trying to draw <laughs> parallels to, okay, so if broke-ass phone's okay, then... You know, F up phone is even better. So um, I love this case. I thought it was hilarious. Spoken like a true intellectual yeah. property lawyer. <laughs> there you go. Tina, well, by the way, Tina draws the line at ass. If you, if you, yeah. if you can, well, yeah, yeah. you know, and also, I mean, what's interesting is that this is this draws interesting parallels to where intellectual property law and trademark law in particular is going on a federal level where marks that were considered scandalous, for example, were not permitted. And now um, there really isn't nearly as much of restriction. There's a lot of First Amendment concerns. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think what we're really seeing is the evolution of the First Amendment as a way of defending some some material and some names and phrases that would have been considered um, you know, inappropriate before. Why not just broke phone? Doesn't that tell the story? Friends? But it doesn't. Broke it's it's boring. Broke ass. Now, in context, right? It's it's irreparable. Mm. So the whole point of the company name is essentially to say, "Hey, bring your phones that can't be repaired to us, and we'll we'll repair it." So it's it's taken on that that meaning and definition, which I thought was also interesting that they brought up. And it's context, is, right? Is, Andrea, is, I, th- I think it's always like, remind me. Is it a thing among the kids to have oh. a broken phone? It seems I like, like it's I like almost you like asked a, me this. It's like a badge Thank of you. honor to have your phone oh, broken yeah. and it not absolu- repaired. It absolutely is. My goddaughter and my little cousins, they all their phones are all broken. They think yeah. it, it drives me crazy. The second my phone gets cracked, I want to fix it. Right. 
but they think it's yeah, it is kind of a badge of honor. I am so on the fence about this one. I know we have to move on. No, but... we have to move. No, I'm, I'm actually showing you my case. Oh. You, could, you, <laughs> could... you know what, Sam? The back of my phone has been broken for two years. The two days after I got this phone, I dropped it, and they can't fix even even broke ass. They can't fix <laughs> the back of a phone. You have wow. to. The front is replaceable. It's a serious back... looking case too, isn't it? I know. Well, some people go, apt some people go no case, yeah, no which case. is which is which crazy. Is nuts um, to so me. this is an, an OtterBox. Am I? Father actually has an box. He goes, You could run it over with your car. Watch. I'm like, Dad, no. no. Nobody. <laughs> yeah. Dad almost sounds like a former guest of Legal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Earlier today. He was going to run the phone over with his car to prove how strong the case was. Wow. I think that's a bad idea, but wow. I don't understand uh, not having a case on your phone. Yeah. yeah. I'm so on the fence about this story. I I, I don't like the name because, again, I don't want yeah. younger people in my family seeing this and, th- and saying, Oh, and thinking it's cute to say, I'm going to take this to broke ass phone, yeah. but. First Amendment. It's franchise this business, broke-ass right, phone. Right, right. I, I really do. But it's fascinating <laughs> to me how certain words have just become... Uh, it, it, everyone says them, so they've dumbed it down. Like Including it's, the president, right? right? Yeah, and and that's, you know, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. Um, you know, there are certain words now I'm thinking, man, everybody will be saying it oh, sooner sure. than later. So I, I hear your point on that. Right, right. Topic number six involves Richard Grieco, 21 Jump Street star, who, Rich, he said he only had two vodka cranberries. Did you watch, watch the, the video? He must be a lightweight. The video <laughs> It must have been buckets of vodka and cranberries. It was epic. He... A flash of cranberry. It was a pour from Cirrus Tavern. It was two vodka right. cranberries from Cirrus. Yeah, the cop got it right. He uh, he didn't believe it for a second when Grieco said it was only two. The my, There's so many great parts with this video, but when he says... Uh, you know who I am. I'm Richard Grieco. Yeah. I'm like, no, sir. I don't. We have no, it's right. not 1992. We I was no going to say, anybody over the age of what, or under the age, rather, of what, 30, would yeah. not know who that is. And yeah. we also know this. If you say you did nothing wrong, you probably did something wrong. Yeah, well, yeah. The video Especially goes, when you start crying. The video, well, right. So the video goes from him at DFW, and then he's at the police station just falling. I mean, just breaking down and he's blowing into the breathalyzer and it turns out it wasn't just Dufat because it was, he blew a .17, which is more than double. And to Tina's point, he's crying and it it generates one of the great all-time mugshots. We cover lots of great (laughs) mugshots on this show and I brought out samples. I mean, that was so sad. (laughs) It's a tough look for Greco, the former booker of, uh, nine of, uh, Well, and the the funny part, back to our our recent discussion on the word ass, so he says, kiss my ass at the beginning (laughs) of the video, which is caught on the body cam as well, so I'm like, and he's trying to act like he's done nothing. And again, saying he's singled out because he's famous. (laughs) Yeah. Really? Well, he's unrecognizable. I mean, he used to be so cute. He He was. Remember that show? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Johnny Depp was on that. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah that was a yeah. good show. Look at him now. <laughs> yeah, Johnny Depp's still pretty cute, but... Just order me a double next time I, I'm at the DFW <laughs> lounge and I'm ordering vodka cranberries. When I get tanked at Potabration, I'm going to say that. I only had two! <laughs> By the way, one more thing about Greco. Speaking of the mafia, he was in the uh, Mobsters movie. He played... Uh, 
Lucky Luciano, I believe, back in the, remember the Christian oh, Slater? Yeah. yeah. One of the great mob movies. Has, any, has anyone else seen, though, just because he was uh, costing, I think, the ticket agent, but yeah. more airports now have signage that says, if you verbally abuse or mistreat a TSA yeah. agent or whoever, mm-hmm. illegal consequences. And, and it's fascinating to me because I hadn't seen that until just recently. So that means that there are more people who are being verbally abusive. So I was actually glad to see... You know, you got to make a case and you have to make uh, and, you know, demonstrate that there are consequences to right, right. not behaving yourself in the airport. For sure. See what happens when there's too many flight delays. Yep. <laughs> it's only fitting that we end our final show of 2019 talking about holiday lawsuits. Let's wrap it up. There are so many holiday lawsuits. I don't even know where to begin, but... Um, we had an interesting synopsis of them, and we'll hit some of the highlights. So what about some inmates? I don't know, like 8,000 <laughs> inmates listening to Christmas songs all day long to the point where they actually sued, claiming it was a violation of their civil and religious rights to be listening to too much Christmas music. Rich, yeah, what do you was, think about this that? Was, this was Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who... Uh, is a Trump cohort who unsuccessfully ran for what Senate, and mm-hmm. then there was a lot of allegations. About and he was things pardoned, that, right? He was pardoned. Yes, yep. yes, um, he was. So he used that as a means of uh, of torturing the <laughs> prisoners. And speaking of someone who does not, is I'm not a big fan of the holiday songs. I would agree. Yeah, I, you're I would, like a Grinch probably, when it comes to the holiday songs. I'm a Jewish Grinch. I'm the, I'm the Hebrew Grinch. You know, play me a uh, my you know. Dreidel song all day long, but if I have to hear, you know, rocking around the Christmas a, yeah, tree, and... white Christmas one more time, I will. I jump love the off fact that the inmates could get representation, though. Oh, yeah. Yes, that's oh. a case. Cruel, like, unusual was... punishment. I agree. <laughs> oh, I think it's. Kind of, I think uh, you know. I think it's kind of cute. I, I, have, I, think, uh, I like the fact that they. We did have that. two live comments on Facebook Live, by the way. Alan Goldstein has said a load of liquor. <laughs> a lot of lawsuits. There you go. Okay, very Always. good. Probably after three or four vodka cranberries, but go ahead. Richard? There's yeah. also a ringing at your front door, Rich, according oh. to your phone. So. <laughs> That's right. You may want to check it that might out. be Richard Grieco so, paying me a visit. Booker. Jennifer, before we go, let's uh, let's talk about your book. What's it like to write a book? I mean, how did that process go? How long did it take? And uh... It was a journey. So um, the actual writing was two and a half years because I researched um, the book. It's uh, a survivor's guide for thriving through mergers and acquisitions. And I didn't want it to just be my story. So I interviewed lawyers, um, CEOs, um, HR, private equity. And it was a fascinating journey. I'd have to say the writing of a book, particularly in the mergers and acquisitions space where everyone has an emotion around the carnage and fallout. Um, I was happy to be able to contribute a book to the world that wasn't focused on making the deal, but was focused on helping people get through it. And before you got here, Andrea then said, well, I'm going to write a book now. Yes, <laughs> so, I said, I'm so impressed. It's so cool. I said, I have to write a book next time. That next time, It's so a new business talk. card. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I don't right, know if fa- I should do fiction or nonfiction, uh, though. I have to consult my lawyers. Well, and if you do not, I would also, there's the Harlequin romance route that can be really ooh, fascinating. Ooh, and you take a nice. pen name. That, those are surging again. Fabio, so, right? I do that. If Fabio on the cover, you're good. It doesn't even have to be Fabio. No. Could be Sam. Yeah. I mean, Could be that, Sam. <laughs> ever since Twilight, that market has broadened wow. significantly. Sam, you'll be so. on the cover of my book. I will you charge a million dollars so I can pay my Davidson lawsuit. Yeah. <laughs> there you there go. You know. <laughs> How about that? All right. Favorite uh-huh. holiday movie before we run. We always got to do a round table. What, what, Sam, favorite holiday movie? Home Alone. Mm. It is a holiday movie. movie uh, house is up for sale. 
I saw I you. Yeah. Yeah. I saw you can use your million Thirty years that. later. Yeah, Andrea. Uh, I have. It's a tie between Elf, which I watched last night, and Love Actually. Ooh, nice. Two favorites. Yeah. I, mine's a tie too. It'd be uh, It's a Wonderful Life, or my husband is Clark Griswold. So, <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. Christmas vacation. <laughs> Christmas awesome. vacation. Tina. Well, I've got like a three-way tie, but um, I love Christmas Story, and I also love Sleepless in Seattle. Which oh, is yeah. someone, I, I would say that's a Christmas story because the beginning really, I mean, just like Die Hard's a Christmas movie, yeah, Die Hard's yeah. a Christmas movie. That was rated number one Sleepless a in Seattle years. is too. I love that movie. <laughs> David and I watch it every every Christmas. Mm. Love that. And Ben says his favorite holiday movie is Die Hard. Yeah. Not to start a Die Hard debate. Yeah. <laughs> it's Ben's call. It's not my call. Yeah. I will go with uh, Eight Crazy Nights, of course, the famous uh, Adam Sandler movie. One of the only (laughs) Hanukkah movies out there. (laughs) Nice, nice. Well, Jennifer Fondre, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Andrea Darlis, good to see you. Thank you for having me. For Rich and Tina, I'm Sam. We'll talk to you in 2020 on Legal Face Off. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab, so hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question, just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the politics. It don't get no better than this, nah. Courtroom combat.